Robert Craddock does join us. Morning, Crash. Morning to you, Jules. Yes, and what a morning it is. A great morning. Uh, before we get stuck into the cricket, uh, it's been tough for uh, Brisbane and Queensland-based sporting teams in deciders and grand finals over the last 12 months. The Gold Coast got it done in the VFL against Werribee, but you've had a run of outs in NRL, AFL, uh, Super Rugby. But uh, the girls, the Lions got it done yesterday. What's the reaction locally been? Terrific, and uh, so it should have been. <laughs> There's nothing quite like a near miss in the grand final, Jules, is there? I mean, uh, the, the the Brisbane Broncos squandered a 16-point lead with 19 points to go, and the Lions, of course, the men's team, were, were ahead with five minutes to play. Incredible, isn't it? Both teams ahead with five minutes to play at the end of the season, come up empty-handed. Then, of course, the Brisbane Heat uh, women's team on Saturday night beaten by the Strikers. But the Lions, a lovely come from behind, 17-point win over North uh, Melbourne. And I think that uh, Craig Starcevich, the coach, who was embedded in the women's system even before the WAFL happened, is rightfully getting a lot of plaudits for his just... He's so sensitive to to the coaching system there and he's lost a lot of players and uh, he is as high-profile as any of the players and uh, rightfully so for the... For the patchwork quilt he's had to put in his season after season, he gets his best players stolen and he just somehow comes away and, and wins. What's the cut through like with AFLW up there in Queensland? It's been a hugely successful team, the Brisbane Lions. You've got the great new facility at Springfield, which gets really good crowds. What sort of, you know, sort of media coverage does the Brisbane Lions AFLW team get? Uh, solid, but I think a premiership lifts it to another level. Uh, you know, it could always get a bit more. I, I feel it's probably been a little bit undervalued, to be honest with you, given that, you know, the quality of of, uh, of the team and that. So this will help it as well. And, uh, you know, it's a very competitive sporting market, I have to say, in Brisbane. Look, you can't hide it. Rugby league and the Broncos dominate the landscape. And the thing is, Jules, we see it in the numbers. Stories attract now. In the old days... You never quite knew who was how much was reading a story, but they're tracked. And, and the, the Broncos dominate the city, but uh, the Lions are certainly increasing by the year. Yeah, great win for the girls and Craig Starcevich yesterday. First test, not too far away now. Crash, the 14-man squad, pretty predictable. I guess Lance Morris, is there any chance he plays in this first test? And is there any chance they find a way to get Cam Green back into this team? I think it'll happen. Uh, the first question, uh, Lance Morris, only with an injury, and George Bailey was pretty categorical about that yesterday. He sort of, you know, hinted strongly that they'll be going with the tried and true of Hazelwood, Stark and Cummins. Why would you change? There's talk of Mitchell Stark having a slight niggle. I would love to see Morris have a go because I think uh, he's such an interesting story, the wild thing. You know, we were reminded he was watching Mark Wood in the Ashes and he sort of got out up off his chair in Perth and said, that's the bowler I want to be. That guy, when he comes on, he captivates people. He unsettles batsmen. He's, and he's good, Morris. He's, he's, a, he's a fascinating player. Uh, I think he can become a real cult hero in Australian cricket. Good-looking kid, speaks well. Uh, but it won't happen the first test. I don't think. Cameron Green, I think, after this series is finished and David Warner retires... They are leaning towards promoting either someone like Labouchain to opener or Greg Chappell suggested Mitch Marsh. 
Very good suggestion. Don't mind that at all. Um, and then there'll be space for Green to bat at number four. Last week at the Gabba, he made a honey-sweet 96 with all these gorgeous drives. And I said to him afterwards, would you like to bat number four for Australia? And he's a really sort of mild-mannered kid, but he, he jumped at that. He said, absolutely, I'd love to bat up the list. So I, I love the fact – a lot don't, Jules. A lot want to go the other way. So I think it's wonderful that he has that mindset. How much of a calculated risk would it be to move Marnus from the number three spot, which is you know, lot see that as the most important spot in the batting lineup? He's been so successful at it. If they did choose to go that way, how big of a risk would that be? Um, great point. Now, very little because we're playing the West Indies and Pakistan. But I'll, I'll just p- close your eyes and picture this in his season or so's time. Kawaja retired. Warner retired, Smith retired, Labu Shane, your anchor man, and you want him opening the batting? Mm. I, I, that's when I don't like it, Jules. And I also don't like it because I just sense Marnus doesn't particularly want to move up. Now, when Australia was shopping for a number three batsman, Greg Chappell did a lap of the MCG and he said to one player, do you want to bat at three? And he goes, oh, I'm not sure about that. And he said to Marnus Labu Shane, would you like three against India? In, in tomorrow, and he goes, oh, love to, put me there, I'd love to bat three. But that mindset was different. That's going from outside the team to inside the team. He settled at number three, and I just, people can say, oh, there's not much difference between three and opener because you're basically in, yeah, but if it tampers with his mindset, I, I don't love it, I have mm. to say. I don't love it. Yeah, be a bold move, I reckon. Uh, Mitch Johnson's article, there's a few different ways we can go with this one. Just your overall thoughts on the piece before we, you know, double down on a couple of the specific points that he made. Yeah, well, he 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 went in fearlessly and he, he said what he thought. Um, I thought, you know, it might have gone a, a touch hard, but there's 200 comments at the bottom of the our version of the article from the Western Australian and... We sort of, um, most a lot of them were supporting what he said about David Warner. Look, you could go either way with David Warner, couldn't you? You could go that way and saying that he didn't deserve uh, to, to his lap of honour, or you could look at, at the other side and say the difference between Ian Healy, who uh, was rejected a, a testimonial test, basically, and, uh, was he had... Adam Gilchrist snapping at his heels. David Warner has got three opening batsmen by the names of Bancroft, Renshaw and Harris who've scored one century between them in 38 tests. Um, and so it, it, it's a tricky decision. Um, Mitch, Mitchell just spoke his mind and, uh, you know, it was, uh, you know, it's caused an enormous amount of interest in, in, uh, in, in, in the summer and that particular decision over David Warner. Is, is there no intention between Mitch and, and Dave Warner? I, I don't know. You know, they played in the same era. They were teammates in a, in a World Cup victory. They, uh, they, they, you know, Warner saw from close range Mitchell 10 years ago when he flatlined the Poms who were, who were uh, beaten straight-setted in the series, weren't they? Australia won 5-0 in Australia. And, and I still say that that spell, the bowling by Johnson in that series, 
was the most fearsome fast bowling that I've ever mm. seen, uh, you know, in, in covering the sport. Nothing quite matched up to it. It destroyed the whole English system. You know, selectors lost their jobs. Team managers, I think something like 20 people lost their jobs in English cricket because of this hurricane force of Mitchell Johnson. It was extraordinary. But, um, yeah, so it was it was interesting. I mean, a lot of people have had their say about whether he deserves farewell tests or not, and so he's not the first one to bring that up. But the fact that he said it's been five years and David Warner has still never really owned the ball tampering scandal, is is that fair or is that a little bit harsh from Mitch? Uh, I, I feel that Warner suitably was punished, probably suffered more than anyone from the ball tampering scandal. There's no doubt about that. I mean, the the, the life captaincy ban, the year ban and everything like that. But, um, you know, so... It's the one thing about the ball tampering scandal was that all those involved are still suffering in their different ways. I mean, I I think it it is a slight factor in Cameron Bancroft not being recalled to Australia. He may be good enough to overcome it, but remember last year Bancroft said where he 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 hinted that there are more people in the team like the bowlers may have known about the um, uh, the ball tampering and the bowlers released a statement saying they didn't know about it. So, oh, does that go in the mix to, before he's 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 returned or selected? I think subliminally it probably does. You know, when you're a fifty fifty candidate, you need everything to go your mm. way. So, yeah, it, it's it's interesting. It it really is the whole thing. So, would you say? I know you spoke about this last week with Jared, but after six rounds of the Sheffield Shield. Bancroft's made 512 runs at 57, but that's still not enough to get a recall. So going on what you said there, do you think that plays a part in that? I, I, I tell you what's a greater part, the fact that Bancroft has had 10 tests and average 26. Mm. I mean, if you said to me, name players who have had less chance with greater results or better players than Bancroft, I'll give you uh, Brad Hodge from Victoria, Martin Love, mm. Stuart Law, none of them played 10 tests and all of them in my books are better players than Bancroft. If, if, if you get 10 tests and you average 26, and this is such a crucial point, Jules, the selectors feel they don't owe you anything. Mm. If he'd never played a test, Bancroft, and you're asking me that question, you said, is he unlucky? I'd say, do you know what, Jules, he is unlucky. He really is to, to have a good shift. But because he's been tried and failed with a technique... I think they're still yet to be convinced about. I don't put it this way. In WA, Cam Bancroft is the heartbreak kid who should get more chances. I can't get there because he's been there for 10 mm. tests and average 26. I'm sorry. He's mildly unlucky. I can't get to the heartbreak kid side of things. So George Bailey sort of stressed yesterday, you know, like all the players in the team, it's a test by test decision but do you do you really think if David Warner failed twice in the opening test his spot would be in jeopardy for the second test or do you think the fact he he will be playing in the first test he will get these three tests to finish that he craves if you said out of 10 the chances of Warner playing all three tests I'd say 9.5 and if you said what's the 0.5 that 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 he can't and I'd say if Australia lost the first test badly and Warner made six and two, 
there'd be just a chance that that he would he, his position would be under review if he got out really badly. I don't think it'll happen. And the thing is, then, Jules, you move on to the second test, and I tell you, what, I tell you what won't happen: he won't be dropped for the third test. Mm-hmm. That, that won't be happening. He won't be dropped for the test from which he decided. If he can get to, if he can get to the second test in Melbourne, he'll get to Sydney. But the only, oh, I mean, and I think he's nine point five out of ten for playing all three. But if he, if a, if Pakistan pulled off the shock of all shocks at the Wacker, and he made six and four and Cameron Bancroft made 210 in the Prime Minister's 11 game. Well, maybe maybe there's a discussion there. But, yeah, he... he uh, but, but, you know, it was... There were some interesting threads last night came out with, um, you know, George Bailey saying that... Uh, asking whether Mitchell Johnson, is he OK? Yeah. You know? And there's been feedback about that. People saying that, um, uh, you know, you should never question someone's publicly question someone's mental health, you know. So I, I don't know. I, I, it's certainly, you know, I wonder whether, you know, he's a good man, George, but I, I you know, I, I, I take that on board, you know. Mm. Sort of it's a, it was, that was some of the feedback and it was, it was interesting. But were some of his comments about George Bailey a little harsh, in that he's too close to the players and, you know, was too soon out of the game to be a selector and also the fact that, he stepped away from the decision on Tim Payne, which basically Mitch Johnson said he was weak for doing. Mm. Well, uh, George Bailey has gone a categorically different way to Trevor Holmes. Trevor Holmes never got dressed up in the team tracksuit, never mind do throwdowns and, and the stuff that George does, and he kept a slight distance from the players, which he felt was important in making the big decisions. That's why he was with a clear conscience and able to sit down with Ian Healy and say, Ian, I will not give you this farewell test at the Gabba. Sit down with Mark Taylor and say, your 50-over career is over, Mark. And sit down with Steve Waugh and say, Stephen, it's time. Three big names. And he was distanced from them. George, in defence of himself, said, he said, if someone will tell me that, that there's a better way uh, that, that, that why getting in and hearing the team plans and hearing how people are feeling and being sensitised to it, if someone feels that's detrimental to selection, please tell me and, I'll, and basically I'll move away. So that's fine and he is doing a good job, George. He is. But the, the key point is simply this. If you're going to get in close to the players, you have to be still able to make the hard decision, the really big call. And 90% calls are pretty routine, really, but the big calls, like you've got to be able to tap players on the shoulder and say, it's time, I'm sorry. And, you know, that's that that's the key thing for me. Um, they have had a pretty good year. It hasn't been without flaw. You know, dropping Travis Head uh, in India and stuff, and that didn't go well, the Ashes thing. But, but hey, it's been a good year, and they're doing a solid job. But that's the key question for me. If you get in close like George is doing on purpose, can you still make the big call? Malcolm Conn suggested that he's surprised that Mitch Johnson's gone so hard with the pen a couple of times, given he was a bit, well, precious when it came to criticism as a player. Was Mitch a bit testy if he was criticised when he was playing? Yeah, I never saw it firsthand. I have to admit, um, I had a funny experience. Mitch is, uh, was was plucked out of nowhere to go on Australian Under Nineteen tour of in- England, and Rod Marsh rang up Dennis Lilly when he was, and he said, "I've got no." Dennis Lilly rang up Rod Marsh. He saw Mitch bowl three balls, and he rang up and they got him in the team. 
When they were over there, I got a phone call from the tour manager, Brian Friedman, who said, meet this kid at the Brisbane airport when he comes home, he's going to be a star. And this shy little boy walked through customs, this 18-year-old kid, and he didn't look me in the eye once, he just looked at his shoes during the interview. And so I constantly think of that when, <laughs> when he's delivering these thunderous <laughs> columns, you know. So there's a couple of sides to Mitch. He's, look, he's a very sensitive lad. Um, and he has had, uh, you know, uh, that sort of, um, how do I say, a, a, a challenging childhood. You know, they never had much the Johnsons at times. They didn't ever have Christmas presents, you know. So he grew up through a – he used to wear his dad's golf spikes to cricket. So he, they never had much. So he has, he's had to battle through. And, um, uh, yeah, he, he, he was always sensitive. And that sensitivity was came out as a player when he did feel the pinpricks. Um, and now it's coming out in a different direction, isn't it? Because uh, when he to, – to, to write a very strong column like that. So, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating stuff. It's certainly got everyone talking this morning. Stick around, Crash. On the other side of the break, I want to talk to you about what's been a really terrific couple of weeks uh, for the uh, for Australian golf, uh, particularly the Australian Open up in Sydney the last couple of weeks. You're listening to Mornings for Hyundai. The Hyundai 2023 SUV event is on now. Another great supporter of the station, Host Plus. Welcome back to the show, Jared Waitley. Just getting ready for that first test over in Perth next week, but no rest for the wicked, our own Robert Craddock. Uh, Crash, I want to talk to you about the golf. been a great couple of weeks for Australian golf. I must admit, I wasn't sold on the men and women playing in the same time at the Australian Open. I thought it was fantastic yesterday, both going down to the wire. Minwoo Lee and Minji Lee both in contention. I thought it was a fantastic event up there in Sydney. Yeah, look, I'm still out in it too because I think sometimes it takes the gloss off the women's tournament. Um, and I know in the build-up in the two or three days before it, the media people for the Open were saying, oh, there's a lot of great interviews just disappearing into the ether mm. because there's, there's the leading women are up, the leading men are up. So uh, there was that. But, gee, it's a good fortnight, honestly. And uh, Minwoo Lee was the star, wasn't he? Um and it's funny that for all an Australian golfer can achieve overseas, they can win the Masters or the British Open, they don't sort of get fully franked in the idea, mm. in the minds of Australian fans until they win at home. And uh, Cam Smith, of course, didn't have a great season, uh, fortnight, but he's a three-time PGA winner. And Min Woon Lee, of course, won the PGA and was all over the, uh, um, the Australian Open until he faded in the last round. But uh, we feel we know him as a player and as a person now. And we just feel there's this tangible feeling he will now take us on his journey overseas. Um, and uh, what a journey it, it could be. Uh, he's the golfer that golf's been waiting for, Jules. Like that young, that 25-year-old yep. who just connects to the social media generation. Cam Smith's the next generation up. And he and he's, connects to a different audience. He connects to Bluey in the pub and a few of the boys, <laughs> the league fans, the hot rod boys who drive the the uh, the scar the cars which uh, do the do the fish tails and all that. But this kid's different. He's a different part of the market. He's a very thoroughly modern man. Is is Cam didn't look sharp these two weeks. Has playing live just taken a bit of an edge off his game? Do you think? Oh, well, it's hard to say that when Joachim Neiman, mm. the live golfer, wins the Australian Open. And, and, and so live golfers are going okay outside their tournaments. 
Um, I know he went sort of fishing before the PGA and was just a bit dusty throughout it and uh, was played horribly in, in Brisbane, I have to say. But um, it's been sometimes by the time the golfers get to Australia at the end of the year, a lot of them are tired and the Live Boys have done a fair bit of jet setting this season, uh, this year. Um, it's a fair question, though. I mean, $150 million landed in his bank mm. account to play with Liv. That is the same amount of one year's salary cap in the NRL to every club. <laughs> if you poured every club into a, in, uh, into a little vault, that they would get what Cam Smith got. <laughs> the last penny. It's extraordinary, isn't it's it? Crazy. What that does to What that does to a guy's motivation, especially one who's got his heart's desire, he's won the British Open... Uh, I just don't know, but your question's a very fair one. Yeah, and John Rahm um, is going to be paid even more by the sound of it. Just on the Australian tour, I mean, growing up, there was always the three big tournaments, the Masters, the Australian Open, and the PGA, and then there's some other really good tournaments spread around it. Can we get back to a time where we have a three-week swing here in Australia? PGA and the Open are great, but do we need one more good tournament on a great course to make this swing even more, I guess, significant and, and I guess attractive to some of the better players around the world. Terrific point. Uh, look, the Masters went up in smoke, and it was a good Masters too. It, and it, it was in decline. It faded a few years ago, which is which is disappointing. But to have a Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne swing and to, to, to be really strong about that, have one tournament in each state, you know, it, suddenly it actually feels like a summer again. And, and I'd love to see them do it because we're a bit like we feel we're still hungry for it, Jules. We're, we, we've eaten that ice cream and the ice cream, we're, we're still after that last bite. And two tournaments just doesn't quite do it, I reckon. We're one shy. I mean, fancy Melbourne, and they're talking the Australian Open game there next year, but missing out in a tournament. Mm. Then you've got Sydney missing out. You know, it's just... One tournament each in the big cities, and then Liv goes to Adelaide. Happy days. Yep, I agree. Stick around, Crash. Just want to ask you about the Olympics up there in Brisbane uh, after the news with Nathan Gardner. Thank you, Nathan. Uh, Crash, Olympics 2032, the Lord Mayor's resigned uh, from the organising committee, saying it's a pointless talk fest. Um, What's going on up there? Yeah, Jules, can I be honest with you? Um, this is the first time I've ever been really concerned about Brisbane's capacity to host these games, and, and, and that's a big statement. But yeah. they, they're going to put $2.7 billion into redoing the Gabba, but, of course, the cricket and the AFL, the Lions, who are capable of selling out 40000 they've got to go somewhere else for five years. So they've said, go to the exhibition ground. We'll put in $50 million and you can top up the rest. Well, the Lions and the Cricket are saying, we haven't got that sort of money. We can't do that. You know, certainly the Cricket is saying it. And so it's just hitting Brisbane how expensive a Games really is. We've seen building costs just spiral since Brisbane got the Games. And uh, look, I'm torn, Jules, because I love the thought of Brisbane hosting the 2032 Games and defining the city forever. If you're a small city and you host the Games... It, it, it st- the name stays with you. Like when you think of Helsinki, what do you think of? Uh, you say Helsinki Olympics. You mm. know, if you think of, um, you know, Barcelona, yep. not a small city, but think games. But so I want, I want to see it work well, but I'm really worried. There is a lot of fracture, a lot of displeasure, angry people. 
it has a habit of working its way out, but the clock is ticking. Surely it's unfair on the Brisbane Lions and the Cricket Association to put funding into a revamped stadium. It's not their choice to be leaving the Gabba. So surely that's a bit unfair, isn't it? And Jules, the big concern, and I totally get this from both of them, is what happens after they go back to the Gabba. Because they're saying, hang on, do you want us to put in sort of like $30 million into a stadium we're only going to use for a few years and then have no rights over? Like, well, once we go back to the Gabba, isn't that stadium yours again? Mm. So it's a totally fair question. But, um, man, oh, man, gee, there's some issues. I mean, oh, I see the list of venues they've got and, and they're good, you know, like Ballymore for hockey, perfect, you know, and but, gee, it's an expensive exercise infrastructure. Like, it's... Uh, I would hate to be planning it, Jules, Mm. honestly. And only this morning I was talking to someone who knows someone involved with Olympic planning and I said to them, does he ever talk to you about it? And they said no, but I say this, in the last year he's aged 10. He's aged 10 years, this guy who's organised. He said the stress upon his shoulders, you can almost just see see him trailing a ball and chain when he walks out the door. That's the pressure of it, Jules. Yeah, it is high high stress. Is is metric on... Not an option for cricket and the Brisbane Lions in that time? The gap is not available? Very good question. And, and I asked the same question. And it is an option. And they may well end up there. But it's just that it goes back to the old Brisbane Bears days, you know, yeah. of Warren Capper <laughs> down the road, when which never quite worked. And I really feel sorry... Uh, for for the bosses at the Brisbane Lions, Greg Swan and, and Fagan, because their membership, they can fill nearly 40,000 people at the Gabba. It's wonderful because they win all their home games. And the, the even the exhibition ground is 20,000. So you're locking That's out right. half your crowd for five years. And it's a crowd that they have won over through you know, really solid uh, scrambling and, 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 and years of building and, and working their markets. To have to turn your back on that sort of crowd is, uh, I can understand why, why Greg would be absolutely shattered by it. Yeah, there's a lot to play out there and there's a lot, lot of time to go between now and 2032. Crash, as always, thanks for your time. Look forward to chatting again next Monday. Thank you, Jules. See you then. Bye. Always great to chat to Robert Craddock. Melbourne's weather today, magnificent, mostly sunny, top of 30 for city power, supplying power to homes in the CBD and inner suburbs.